The Latter-day Lives podcast is not owned or operated by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Any opinions expressed or implied in this recording are solely those of the host and guests and not of any specific organization, unless otherwise stated. Hello, friends. Welcome to episode 172 of the Latter-day Lives podcast. I'm your host, Sean Rapier. Thank you so much for checking in with us again this week. We've got such an amazing guest for you. Uh, But before we get into the episode, I need to thank some very special people. Uh, If you listened last week, you know that uh, I asked for some help. It's the first time in the really the history of the show that I reached out to the audience looking for real help, and that is that this show is a lot of work. It's a lot to put together, uh, finding the guests and lining up the times and doing the recording and the mixing, releasing it and all the social media, and it's something I love doing and, and have done now. This is, again, episode 172. Next month is actually our four-year anniversary, which is just incredible to me. But uh, I, I asked if anybody might be interested in helping produce the show, as well as I asked if anyone would be willing to be our social media manager. And I wasn't sure about asking that. I thought, who is actually going to sign up to do this thankless task? You know, there's no money in it. We don't make any money on the show. Uh, we do this out of love. And I just thought, well, maybe no one will answer, but hey, at least I put it out there. And very quickly, I got many responses, seven or eight for each position of people so beautiful, so willing to help out. And some saying, hey, I have a background in this. And others saying, I I have no idea how to do it, but I'm here to help. Thank you so much. I was so touched. And I loved, loved your messages of support. And we we just had such a beautiful outreach. I ended up selecting a a producer as well as a social media manager. I have started reaching out to everybody who offered to help. Uh, If I've not gotten to you yet, I apologize that you're hearing this here. But there were quite a few people, and I did want to thank each person individually. So if you've not gotten a message from me yet, you will uh, very shortly. But uh, there were two people um, specifically who stood out and who I very quickly got a confirmation that they were the right two people to work with on this project. And if you'd like to know who they are, we're going to save it with some suspense to the end. So at the end of the show, I'll let you know uh, who they are and kind of why I ended up choosing them. All right, enough about that. We've got such an incredible guest right now. Gene Chittister is such an incredible example of service. And he is, his whole life has just been dedicated to service. He's such a smart man and such a humble man. And he has been a bishop a couple of times, as well as a mission president and a 70, and now is doing this incredible program the church has that does outreach to other faiths. And he does it all with a smile. And I'm so grateful for Gene. And he and I have really connected and bonded. And I'm so excited for you to hear uh, his story. And coming up this week in my Latter-day life, am I going the wrong way? It's all coming up. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this week's conversation.
And today here on the Latter-day Lives podcast, my guest has lived an amazing life of service in the church, as well as just an amazing life generally. We've got so much to talk about. And actually, at the end of the episode, you got to stay tuned for the end of this conversation because we have a really exciting announcement about our guest, Gene Chittister. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Sean. It's an honor and privilege to be invited to uh, talk to you. Love your podcast. Well, I'm so grateful for Eugene. And and again, our audience, we will tell you at the end of the conversation uh, how Gene and I connected and why. But first of all, we all get to know Gene. Uh, Gene, before we get into all your years of service in the church, tell us a little bit about where you're from, where you grew up. Okay. I, I was born in Murray, Utah. Um, and as I tell my grandkids back when the world was black and white, <laughs> uh, lived there for about four and a half years. So if you picture I-15 in Salt Lake, about 45th South, there's a McDonald's there. If you've mm. ever seen that. Yep, I know where so that the, is. The, the home I lived in when we were born, when I was born, was across the street there. It's now really? a strip mall. So in 1953, when my, my parents were wanting to buy a new home, uh, they put that home on the market, and my dad was offered $5,000 cash or 11 acres of property right there where that home was. Well, he took the $5,000. Oh. Who, who knows how many millions of dollars that 11 acres is worth now. <laughs> so so then we um, they, they bought a home, uh, a brand new home out in uh, Kearns. Now, Kearns, if you're familiar, is in the uh, west part of uh, Salt Lake Valley. Uh, it used to be an Army uh, training camp during World War II. It was a very large Army installation. So it's Camp Kearns. So so when we moved out there in uh, 1954, I remember as a, as a young boy in those first few years playing in Army barracks, uh, our, what became eventually our uh, stake center used to be the uh, post theater. In my neighborhood, we had just all sorts of little boys and little girls, and, and my childhood was f- full of go-karts and clubhouses for no girls allowed. Uh, Sounds wonderful. Were, were you raised in the church? On both sides, uh, we go back to the early 1830s. Wow. Uh, on my mother's side, John Madison Chittister was the first Chittister uh, who was baptized. He was uh, taught the gospel by David W. Patton. Uh, among other things, he was one of Prophet Joseph Smith's bodyguards. And so it's, it's just a rich heritage. And uh, my mother was a Byington. Uh, the Byntons were early converts, taught the gospel by Heber C. Kimball. Amazing. What a lineage. Yeah, it is. And with that, come, I've always felt comes a responsibility. Sure, sure. And that's beautiful that you recognize it. What were you, what were you passionate about growing up? I was passionate about baseball. I was going to be the next Willie Mays. <laughs> and, it, and it never happened. <laughs> and in fact, uh, one of the traumas of my childhood uh, uh, in Little League, I was a pretty good pitcher, but couldn't hit real well. One mm-hmm. of the worst things that happened when I was 11 years old, I hit a home run. And from there on, then on, I thought every single pitch was going to go out of the park. <laughs> and so I turned it into a strikeout machine. And so a big trauma as a 12-year-old is I didn't make the All-Star team. Mm. And I actually walked away from baseball for a few years. Yeah, because that was it. Uh, so you get, you're growing up in this area. You get through high school. What came next? 
So I, I turned 19 the November after I graduated from high school. So rather than go to college, I, I just worked, saved money to go on a mission. And the reason I went on a mission, you know, I, I was raised uh, by wonderful parents. When Nephi talks about goodly parents, I think he had a picture in his mind of my parents. They were oh, wonderful, just, just awesome. So, but I, you know, as a teenager, I kind of had some attitude issues. I'm not sure I would have gone on a mission if it weren't for my older brother. Mm. Uh, he had, he's four and a half years older than me, as I mentioned, served a mission in New Zealand and just had a wonderful experience. And he came home and he said, if you don't serve a mission, you'd be stupid. <laughs> well, no, no little brother wants to be viewed as stupid by his older brother. So, um, I went on a mission, and I should add, um, this was in the fall of 1967, so Vietnam was really heating up. If you were in school, you could get a deferment at that time from the draft, but I wasn't in school, and so it became a kind of a race between would I get my draft notice first or my mission call. Oh, my gosh. Uh, and it, it was it was pretty uh, tense times, and uh, I was working at a grocery store. I, all my friends, everybody around me knew I was pretty uptight about this. And one Monday I came to work and um, a coworker, a good friend of mine said, he said, you can chill out. He said, uh, you're going to get a mission call. And by the way, you're going to Argentina. I thought, how weird is that? This is on a Monday night. <laughs> on Wednesday night, I was down at work and I got a call from my mom. She said, your mission call just got delivered, special delivery. And that used to happen back then. Uh, mm. Not to everybody, but for some reason mine came special delivery. Went home, opened the envelope. They said, you are here by call to serve a mission for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. You are assigned to serve in the Argentine mission. I had not had a clue where Argentina was. Wow. I didn't have a clue what language it was. And so so the journey began, and I, I was pretty concerned because I, I never studied Spanish. The night before I left on my mission, and back then used to uh, spend a week up in the mission home of Salt Lake. Right, you get, And you get set apart there by a general authority. The night before uh, I entered the mission home, I went on my last date. I told this girl that I was really concerned about not knowing any Spanish. She says, I can teach you 10 words. Uno, dos, tres. <laughs> and so that was the extent of my Spanish as I entered the MTC. And it, it turned out to be a very hard and challenging experience. Mm. Um, I, I should back up and say the week in Salt Lake was, was wonderful. I was set apart uh, as a missionary by LeGrand Richards. Oh, like, wow. Just, you know, the one of the great missionaries of, of this dispensation. Sure. So that was awesome. So I went down to Provo, down to language training mission. And back then, it was quite a different experience than what it is now. Uh, there was not as much emphasis on building testimony and on, on having a spiritual experience. It was more of a language boot camp. Mm. Uh, and at the time I was there, about 30% of the missionaries then got reassigned to English-speaking missions because they, they'd have competency tests. And, and if you didn't uh, hit a certain level, then you'd get reassigned. And they would just push you. You put They'd put you in a district, and then they'd go at the rate and the pace of, of uh, the elders who had had the most experience and most Spanish education. So we had elders in my district that had three and four years of Spanish, and I'd had five minutes the night before on a date, you know, and that, and that was it. And it was really hard. And after we'd been there a few weeks, I, maybe a month or so, I got called in by the supervisor at the LTM, the language training mission. And he, he said, uh, Elder Chittister, we're very concerned about 
your ability to learn the Spanish language. We're going to give you about one more week and see, and you and I will get back together and we'll see how this week goes. If it doesn't, doesn't pan out, then, then we'll work on getting you reassigned to a, an English speaking mission. And that became um, an absolute pivotal moment in my life. And I, I was humbled uh, beyond anything. In all these years since, that experience down in Provo during, during those three months I was there, it's one of the hardest experiences I've ever had in my life. But through that, I became acquainted with God. In hindsight, uh, God knew what he was doing because <laughs> it broke my spirit. And it humbled me and I turned to him. And I found coming out of that experience that with him as, as my partner, my companion, I could do anything. And that's what my, my confidence became. And so, anyway, things took off and God, the Lord answered my prayers. And wow. Argentina. And I should mention, I was this mission call was a 27-month mission. So it was three, three months down in Provo and then uh, 24 months down in Argentina. Halfway through my mission, they changed it to pretty much the way it is now to two months uh, in an MTC and, and 22 months in the field. They gave us the option halfway through of you can go home at 24 months or you can stay to the end of your full mission at 27. And I say 27 months. I, I was not going to be cheated one day of that experience. My mission now, it's, it's about eight, eight missions. So Unbelievable. So. All right. So I have to ask you, having served in Argentina, were you allowed to drink mate back then? No. Our mission president was absolutely clear that we, we didn't do that. And, of course, the members uh, looked on it. It, it was kind of odd. They, they thought it was odd. And keep in mind, you know, this is uh, 1968. Uh, we didn't wear name badges. Mm. Uh, the church was still, although the church had gone in there, well, it was officially dedicated by Elder uh, uh, Ballard's grandfather in 1925, I believe. But the missionary work really didn't take off until probably later 40s. Kind of slow. Uh, and so uh, there was a, only one stake in all of Argentina when I got there, the Buenos Aires stake. Uh, there are now, I think, over 60. So you have an amazing experience down in Argentina. Uh, which I know is setting you up for other things that are to come in your life. Uh, but you come home from your mission. What came next? So I came home. I entered uh, school at, at BYU. Uh, they, I don't know if they still call it this, but it was a block program. I was right in mid-semester, uh, which was wonderful because I, I got just got really busy. Uh, so started in school, really not sure what I wanted to do, although I kind of felt – having met some American businessmen down in Argentina, that might be a, uh, something I'd, I'd pursue, which eventually I did. But uh, the, the draft system was implemented, and I got the luck of the draw and got a very low draft number, meaning that I, I would be drafted. And so my, my options were to either be drafted, uh, which meant then high likelihood, you, you had no say where you would serve. You, you would most likely then go to the front lines and and being in uh, combat uh, somewhere in Vietnam. Uh, the other option was to join a National Guard. Uh, and all of the units in Utah were full. So me and some of my roommates down in Provo joined a National Guard unit up in Rigby, Idaho. Uh, they had, uh, that whole unit had gone over to Vietnam and got back and then all the guys got out. And so we traveled to our monthly drills uh, from Provo up to Rigby, Idaho. 
uh, did basic training back at uh, Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri. Was trained as a combat engineer, um, and then got out and then um, eventually returned down to BYU. So you never ended up having to uh, go see war. Ne- never did. So I let's see. I got home from my mission in March 1970. I was in basic training that following October, and that was a somewhat of a culture shock going from oh, I bet. that that kind of a being so full of the spirit and and then and then right into that kind of stuff. Uh, did you end up graduating from BYU then? I did. I did. Yeah. So got back when I got out of, out of the army and then eventually ended back in school and uh, decided on a career in accounting uh, somewhere in there. So this would have been uh, in January of 1972. You know, I was feeling like I was kind of getting a little bit older. I was 23 oh. and, <laughs> and no, no prospects for marriage, you know, and uh, at, back in the day, back then at BYU, that was starting to get a little bit long in the tooth. Oh, so, that's funny. Uh, a little concerned. And so first day of uh, semester in 1972, I walked into a classroom uh, and there she was, uh, this little 19-year-old from San Jose. She had just turned 19 the week before. Uh, she had, uh, the week before, had taken her boyfriend of several years up to the Salt Lake Airport to say goodbye to him for as he left on his mission. <laughs> walked, walked into this classroom when we met and uh, and much like you as I've heard your story it was a very quick quick romance yeah although it took it took several uh attempts to get her to go on a date with me because she always she always was had her schedule was booked and she told me she said I'm not going to break a commitment if I tell a guy I'm going to do go on a date then we're going to do that and and I had had a standing rule that uh I'll ask a girl Three times, and it doesn't matter the excuse. Three, three strikes, and you're out. Three, and we get three strikes, and something just says, "No, you got to try it one more time." And so, number four, it happened, and we went out. And six weeks later, we were engaged. How long have you been married now? Forty-eight years. It'll be forty-nine this coming August. So you're this beautiful young couple. Everything you got, the whole world ahead of you. Uh, where did you? You left BYU. You left Provo. Where did you guys head? So I got a degree in accounting. Uh, I should mention, since uh, my wife, Robin, was from San Jose, we spent a couple of summers uh, living down there, uh, the summer of 72 that we got married in the Oakland Temple, and then the summer of 75, which was the summer before I graduated. And, and through that, I came across a company that I'd never heard of before, a company called Hewlett Packard. So, <laughs> yeah, Big yeah, out company, in the Bay Area. Yeah, just unknown in 1972. I was so impressed. I, I got a job with them through a temp agency, and I was so impressed because every morning at 10 o'clock, they serve free donuts. And I thought any company that's going <laughs> to serve free donuts is my kind of company. But they treated people really well. And so I came back there, worked for them in the summer of 75, uh, through that networked. And so my goal was to get a job with HP coming out of school in cost accounting uh, to work in their to-be-opened plant in Corvallis, Oregon. And that's exactly what happened. That is amazing. How long were you in Oregon? Uh, We moved there in 76. I moved here to Utah in January of 89. So about 12 and a half years. That's a long time. We loved it. Yeah. And then did you have your children when you were in Oregon? We had uh, the first two were born when we were in Provo, uh, 
which was a real challenge, <laughs> having two kids be married and trying to get through school. Sure. Uh, and then the uh, the three youngest were born in Oregon. And yeah. so the older ones kind of consider Albany, Oregon, their home. So here you raise these incredible children, which is awesome. Uh, and I'm not sure, kind of because I don't know your whole story, a couple of highlights of your life that I do know about, uh, but I don't want to jump forward, is, you know, here the young man who was struggling with Spanish, <laughs> trying to figure things out uh, as a missionary, all of a sudden you get a pretty important calling. You want to talk about that next, or are there things in between you want to discuss? Uh, no, that that would be fine. Um, so uh, let me just kind of back up and give a little bit of foundation on this. Uh, my mother was an absolute saint. She had a very difficult upbringing. Her mother died when she was just a young girl. Mm. She was essentially raised on a farm up in Lava Hot Springs, Idaho, by her her brothers and older sisters. Uh, but she always turned to the Lord. It was really important to her, and she instilled that in her children. She instilled that when, when you're feeling down and discouraged and depressed, go serve. Do something for somebody else. And then she would say, if if there's something that's worth doing, it's just worth doing right. And and she instilled in us the desire to do our very best in whatever we could do. Now, I don't consider myself the brightest guy in the room, generally. <laughs> and and I and I'm lacking in a lot of talents. But I I do give it my all when, when I have a responsibility. And so through that. I was blessed with many wonderful church service opportunities, uh, including serving as a bishop twice. I won't take you through all the details, but... Uh, but serving twice as a bishop, your second time getting called, did you kind of go, wait a minute, I've already done that. <laughs> yeah, it, it was kind of different because um, the, the first time was up in Albany, Oregon as a bishop. I was 35 years old when I was called. Wow, that's a young bishop. Yeah. With a young was, family. With, with a young family. And at the time I was traveling all over the country and traveling to the Orient many times through my job at HP. So the second time, there's actually a branch president over at YSA branch. They, oh, they, awesome. These are now all, they all call them bishops. But back then, uh, it was a branch in our stake. And it was like, as my predecessor said, you're going to love this calling. It's like serving in Disneyland, <laughs> uh, <laughs> which it turned out to be true. And so what happened, I, you know, the, this five-year period as a bishop was just the most intense learning period for me. Mm. And so I felt like I had gone to a youth conference uh, the year before I'd been serving about four and a half years. My state president came up, put his arms around me and said, Bishop, he says, I, I think you're finally starting to figure this out. <laughs> We're going to release you this next year. <laughs> and so anyway, that, that happens. And, uh, you know, I just have to tell you as a side, a few months later that I had a, a uh, professional recruiter, what we call headhunters. A guy used to come after me all the time for various jobs on the West Coast. And I said, if you ever find anything down in Salt Lake City, Utah, give me a call. He calls back um, a week later. He says, I found just the job for you. It's got your name all over it. Well, it, it took some while, some time, and it, it rolled out. So we come down here to Salt Lake, and I eventually get called to be this branch president over a YSA group. And I thought, okay, all these things that I learned as this young bishop, I'm now going to come out of, I'm just going to come out of the chute just with guns blazing. And I spent more times in apartments and homes and ministering and didn't 
put a lot of energy into administering, which is, I think, a lot what happened as a bishop. Here comes uh, October. We get a call. We're invited, uh, Rob and I are invited down to Elder David B. Haight's office, which was a wonderful experience, a sweet man. Um, he says, I can't extend this call to you. I think he said, if I were you, I would plan to leave the country uh, next July for three years, if you know what I mean. And he said, you ought to sell that big house on the hill, which we didn't. <laughs> <laughs> and then he said, and then Elder Hayes said, as we were leaving, he said, if anybody asks why you're here, just tell them you were checking on your membership records. <laughs> <laughs> that is amazing. Gee, so, what an incredible experience. Yeah. And so then the, the call uh, to, to serve as mission president is extended by a member of the First Presidency. So we knew that was coming. Elder Hayes had told us that. Uh, and so the end of November, it was the Monday after Thanksgiving in 1999, we were invited down to President Monson, Thomas S. Monson's office. Uh, he extended the call to preside over Spanish-speaking mission of the church. Well, so this is now 29 years since I had served a mission in Argentina. Hadn't spoken much Spanish at all, pretty well, we walked away from it. And I said, President, we will serve wherever you would have us serve. There's one problem. I don't speak Spanish. <laughs> he says, oh, it'll come back. And there was not a lot of empathy. He said, it'll come back. And, the following, and of course, we accepted the call. And the following week, um, we got a call from the MTC. And they, they said, the brethren are really concerned about mission presence and their companions showing up in the missions, not being able to communicate with their native missionaries, nor the local members. So I we want to get a Spanish speaking program, tutoring program going for you so that you'll be ready. And so this was in December and we were to go the following July. And so they, uh, she said, and she, this is all in Spanish, by the way, uh, she makes you speaking really slow, but I got the gist of it. She said, when do you want to get started? And so the week after Christmas, we got a room assigned to us and approval with the MTC. Uh, we slept down there every Friday night. So we'd go down Friday mornings early, sleep there Friday nights in the MTC. We'd have, Robin had her tutors, I had mine, uh, and we'd come home Saturday night. It was the most remarkable experience. For six months, we did that. And I, I told people later and I, that uh, you could have blindfolded me and dropped me in the MTC, and I could tell you that's where I was. Wow. The spirit was so powerful. Just an awesome experience. I love that place, and I totally know what you're talking about. The MTC has that. Just so, spirit. Isn't it wonderful? So I, I should mention our, our mission called mission assignment was to the Uruguay Montevideo West Mission. Uh, and so very similar culture to Argentina, very similar language. And it was just wonderful. And the church, uh, very strong. Uh, while we were there, uh, the Montevideo Temple was dedicated. President Hinckley came down with uh, then Elder Oaks. Beautiful. So now when you speak Spanish, uh, do you speak it with the shh of the Uruguay? Uh, do you speak the Uruguay show? Uh, it depends. When I'm really comfortable with somebody, and especially with, when I'm with an Argentine or Uruguayan, I will. But, yeah. but uh, in our current church calling, we work with a lot of Hispanics here in Davis County. Uh, and they're mostly from Guatemala or Mexico. And I Got find it. myself kind of adapting that a little bit. Yeah, that makes I'll, sense. I, I'll tell you kind of a funny story. A few years ago, we were down, standing outside the conference center to enter for a 
session general conference. And I heard these two men talking behind me. And I said, oh, I recognize that accent. And I turned around and I said in Spanish, ustedes son argentinos, are you Argentines? And he said back to me in Spanish, how do you know? He said, yo me llamo Guillermo. <laughs> he said that with a twinkle in his eye. It's only a porteño from Buenos Aires. Yo Zares, me llamo Guillermo. So, but I, I love that Spanish. Right? I just absolutely love that. Spanish. Oh, that's beautiful. So how was the experience going to, uh, going to Uruguay and being a mission president? I have never worked harder in my life. I was told that before. And I can tell you, that's one of those things that, uh, yeah, my brother-in-law was a mission president. I know. No, you don't know. <laughs> it was it was three years. Uh, I met with, I have to back up, part of my training uh, before we went down there, I spent a little bit of time with the uh, mission president here in our area, in the Ogden mission at that time. And he said, uh, when he stepped into that mission, he said it was like the train left the depot, I grabbed on, and he said it was an e-ticket ride all the way. He said I was parallel to the ground, and my feet didn't hit the ground until three years later. And that's the way it was. Uh, it, it was uh, when we were had the new mission presence seminar uh, the week before we went down to Uruguay, uh, Elder Holland was talking about the rigors of being a mission president and how demanding. But he, he gave some caution and counsel. He said you need to be as fresh for those last for that last group of missionaries that come in as you are for the first group that come in. Mm-hmm. He said you need to pace yourself. And he said you need to take a preparation day every week. Because if you don't, you're not being obedient. And I thought I, I said to myself, no problem. I can be obedient with that one. I get down there and I am scheduled at state conferences nearly every weekend, it seemed like. Uh, and some of these state conferences they'd be six hours to the north. They'd be five and a half hours to the West. There'd be district conferences, three and a half hours to the West. I probably averaged um, in the three years, I, I would say I averaged one preparation day every six weeks. Oh my gosh. Uh, I, I can count on probably one hand the number of nights I slept more than six hours. Um, but yet being fully sustained. Talk about the relationship between you as a mission president, both out in Uruguay as well as now when you see your missionaries, your missionaries. That's a, that's a very one, it's just a right on pertinent question. So we get our mission call. Uh, we didn't know anybody in that mission. Uh, and then I had an opportunity to meet a few that had had their calls that lived here in Utah. Uh, we got to meet them down in, at, at the MTC and, and do some things down there. But the most remarkable thing that happened, the first day we got to our mission home, the outgoing uh, president took us into his office and he opened this this board, which you've probably seen those like recipe size cards as a picture of all the missionaries uh, and looked at that and it was overwhelming. The, the love, just, just the instant connection with these missionaries. But I never met them and you could feel the, the love for them. Well, and then as you go through and you serve with them uh, and, and through the highs and lows and you see these young men that show up as 19 year olds and you watch the transformation process. You know, we, we sit back here and, and we marvel at these return missionaries and, they, and they, they come home and they give a talk and and we all were just in awe at the maturity level and, and the growth. 
What we don't see is that that transformation process that occurs a year and a half or two years in the mission. It's not always pretty. It's not always pretty, uh, but it always happens. And there's tremendous growth. And so through that, uh, the mission president plays a key role. Uh, we weren't uh, mommy and daddy. We were mission president, priesthood leader, and mission companion. And it was really important to have that kind of respect and distance. Uh, I, I, I didn't hug the sister missionaries and, and sister Chittister didn't hug the elders. Um, but there's been, there, there's been a lot of hugging since. <laughs> we, we, one of the blessings of living here in Utah is, especially when we first got back from the mission, is so many of them were in school down in Provo. Uh, we had regular reunions. We got together regularly. Uh, as years have gone on, uh, the intervals have, have lengthened. Uh, we last had one, uh, a Zoom reunion, uh, which was really wonderful because it, it tied into our missionaries in Latin America, uh, missionaries all over South America, and, and actually missionaries throughout the U.S. It's wonderful. So we've been able to stay very close to many of them. Uh, four of our young missionaries have died since our mission. Uh, two of cancer a sister missionary at a, at a very young age. I think she was 26. And we had an elder who, he, he was from Argentina, got home, married, had a child. He probably had been home three or four years since he got cancer and died. We had uh, one of my assistants uh, was killed in a repelling accident down in Moab a few years ago. Um, I think, I'm think, I can't remember, 2015, 2016, somewhere in there. And then a couple of years ago, we had one of our elders that got killed in an ATV accident. Those are hard. Those are really hard. We had 500, about 500 missionaries over that three-year period and just grew to love them as our own. Uh, and, and now, all these years later, to be able to join in their accomplishments and just, uh, you talk about joining your posterity. It, it just explodes with that experience. Uh, so, so we all in 2003. And I was called uh, shortly thereafter, if I remember right, that's been a few years, I was called to be teacher's corner advisor in our ward. Oh, wonderful. Uh, and, and, you know, that's kind of an active group. And after I'd been in it for a while, and these were good kids, but they were 14 years old and 15 years old. And I was talking to another fellow on our stake who had been a mission president. And he said, well, when I got home, they called me to be deacon's corner advisor. And he said, I go in there and he said, I had just come from a three-year experience where people wanted to listen to me. They were interested in knowing what I had to say. And, and then they put me in a, in a room of 12 and 13-year-olds and they could care less. And so I so went through a little bit of that kind of experience, but they were, they were wonderful young men. So served in that for a while and then served in uh, Hispanic Initiative uh, in the Utah North area. I got called with my son, and we ought to talk about our youngest son here in a moment, but uh, I got called to be assistant wolf den leader. Mm. Uh, now, our son, Matthew, who's now 35, has Down syndrome. Okay. Matt is an Eagle Scout. Uh, I'm not an Eagle Scout. I'm a Star Scout. And Matt outranks me. So <laughs> so, so the bishopric said, we're going to make him the wolf den leader. You are his assistant. And that was, and these are kids now that are, they're just graduating from high school. 
I think some of them are on missions now, actually. So we did that for a while. Uh, and then uh, we get a call from uh, one of the presidents of the 70, uh, Elder J. Jensen, who had been our area president down in South America. We hadn't seen him for a few years. And we thought, oh, he just wants to check in, see how we're doing. Uh, <laughs> life's good. I had no premonition about what was to come, which was really odd because, as I mentioned uh, in other callings, particularly as a branch president, um, bishop, when I was called into a state presidency, I had some sense that something was coming. This one, I had no idea. And so we, we went down to meet with Elder Jensen in his office, thinking that it's either a call for Robin, because she had served on some church-level committees, or he just wants to see how we're doing. We sit down and we chatted for a while, and he pulls out a letter, and he has Robin read this letter from the first presidency, uh, extending a call to me uh, to serve uh, as an Area 70 and as a member of the 5th Corps of 70. Uh, it just, speechless uh, would be a word. <laughs> I mean, there just was nothing to say. Um, and then he, this was in January of 2012, it would have been. And I was to be sustained in general conference that following April. He said, uh, you can tell your immediate family, your kids, when we get closer to general conference. But he said, for right now, this is between you, the two of you and the Lord. And he said, your focus over these next few months is to understand what it means to be and a special witness of Jesus Christ. And so I was given a charge and an invitation to get to know him in ways I had never known before. And so I studied, I prayed, I read, I studied, I went to the temple. And I was told that that witness will come in a very sacred, in a very real way. But it happens to different people in different ways. He said, but come, it will. And I'm here to tell you it came. And so of all of that, as I served over the next five and a half years, that particular experience is the way it started. <laughs> I mean, how do you top something like that? And what a what a choice, sacred experience to be his special witness and to bear witness of him. And so um, in um, April of 2012, then I was sustained in general conference. Uh, we were, of course, there in the conference center immediately. Uh, our phones started lighting up with text messages. I got, I got a, the first text message was from our bishop congratulating me and saying, oh, by the way, what about Robin, who was serving as his Relief Society president? We thought we'd give that a try, and that lasted uh, but a few weeks. And, I have so, no doubt. But, but then the journey began. Uh, it, a most interesting experience, uh, when, when you, you get into that, there's so many different angles and aspects. Uh, there are things that most people never see or experience and know that's going on, ministering. Uh, and I had just some most remarkable experiences with members of the 12 on something you will never hear, you'll never read about, you'll never see, but where they're one-on-one ministering uh, and things that would just bring you to your knees. When, when you, you could see them as they represented the Lord and, and loving people, just powerful. The first three state conferences that uh, you would get assigned to, you're basically in training. So you would go out with the 
a different general authority. The first one I was assigned, I was assigned uh, with Elder Marlon K. Jensen, whom I never met, although I'd, I just always just admired and respected him. He had uh, given some training down at Mission President Seminar when we were there. I just always loved and admired and respected him. So it was a real treat for, for me. So we had a wonderful weekend at the state conference. And then afterwards, he just sat down and and he just let me pepper him with questions. And then uh, he, in a very kind, loving, and gentle way, gave me some very important feedback <laughs> about just various things. And, uh, you know, I, I I showed up at that state conference with all my prepared talks, all these wonderful quotes that I'd studied and loved all these years, read them word for word, feeling pretty good about that. And then he said, um, you are the quote. <laughs> he said, you treasure up. You be led by the spirit. You are the quote. And so basically what he's saying is you don't rely on somebody. Else. He said, yeah, he said, it, it's just all right every now and then and to make a point. But remember, you are the quote. And then he said, um, just something for you to consider. He said, as you get your state conference assignments, sometimes they'll come pretty fast and furious. And there's not a lot of time to prepare. He said, what I did was uh, prepared about 50 talks on 50 different topics. And he said, I just knew them. And depending on how the spirit would direct me, that's where I'd go. It was wonderful, wonderful counsel. I didn't prepare 50, but I, I probably was well into my 20s. Uh, and there would be times, um, well, President Packer would tell us in our training about the importance to follow the Spirit and speak by the Spirit. And he said, he encouraged us, he said, it's okay to stand up in a state conference not knowing beforehand what you're going to talk about and just start talking. And I can tell you, I've done that. I, I did that many times where I'd be sitting on the rostrum. Now our concluding speaker will be Elder Gene Archer, the Stir of the Seventy. And I didn't know until I walked up and stood on that, in front of that pulpit, what I was going to talk about. It's just the most mark, marvelous experience. Uh, and the other uh, part of that experience I'd share uh, that's hard to articulate, but it's just beautiful. So you go to these state conferences, and uh, occasionally I see people that I knew, but generally not. But you stand in front of hundreds of people not knowing anything about their background, not knowing anything about them, and yet you can feel the love of their Heavenly Father. It just was just the most remarkable experience. You could just, you knew that God loved them. You know that God loves his children. Uh, and it just was a great experience that way. And through the course of that, uh, just met wonderful, wonderful people. Gene, that is beautiful. How long How long did you serve in that capacity? Uh, about five and a half years. So, yeah. so I, you know, I was called in January of 2012, uh, released, officially released in October 2012 or 2017. That is just incredible. And then you got called into something that uh, you've told me a little bit about that I think is so neat. If you could tell us a little bit about what you and your wife are doing now, because I think this is just one of the neatest things I've heard. So um, a little over a year ago, this is probably a month or so into the pandemic lockdown and you recall those days we weren't going anywhere and with our youngest son matthew we felt a particular need to sure keep him, you know we were just afraid uh, 
like I think most people were. So a month or so into that lockdown, I get a call. Uh, and of course, it's uh, by Zoom. I get, we're not, uh, and, and the call is to serve on what's called the Davis Communication Council. And I scratched my head and I thought, thought I kind of knew what most of the callings out there were. Never heard of them. <laughs> and then I, I am told, well, think public affairs. Well, the church has changed. There have been an emerging of some departments internally. And, and so it's, it's basically a public affairs calling. Our specific assignment is to work in the Hispanic work here in Davis County. We work with uh, the uh, Spanish branches. And then the real fun part is uh, Robin and I have been assigned specifically to three uh, churches, uh, Hispanic churches, not of our faith. Uh, so one is an evangelical church up in uh, Kaysville, another one. Uh, so let me say the name of this church and see if you can repeat it. Iglesia Evangelica Cristiana Espiritual. <laughs> wow, that is, that is a name that almost rivals our own. <laughs> yeah, that, that's exactly what my thought was. That Pastor Bernie Gonzalez, and we, we've attended their congregation, so it's fun. So another one here in Bountiful is called Casa de Dios. And then um, House of God, a Christian uh, Spanish church, and then uh, Testigos de Jehová here in Bountiful, which is Jehovah's Witness. And so what our responsibility then is to, first and foremost, is to establish a relationship with them, relationship of trust. And this is not a proselyting calling. You know, and so here, here we are with our background, and you think you just, you're going to go headlong, but that's not what we do. We're becoming friends. And then they're particularly here in Utah. They're very sensitive to that. And and so that's the, the first hurdle is to just let them know of our sincere desire to be their friend and to be there to support and help them. So after we established, so, so going back to what I said, so we're given that responsibility during a pandemic. Go make friends. <laughs> <laughs> wow, really? Well, the Lord has his ways. And just like missionary work has changed during this time of uh, you know, how the missionaries and, and during that time doing missionary work in their apartments and doing a lot of social media, uh, we find that there are ways to do church callings that are different from what we used to do. It's a paradigm shift. And so through that, we've, we've established a good rapport relationship with these wonderful pastors and uh, we participate in their, their church services. And what we do then is we, we make them aware of church and community resources that can help their members of their congregation. I'll give you an example. Uh, we have a complete library of resources in Spanish with links in summer church, like English Connect, uh, pro bono legal services. Others are Davis County or Utah State uh, County Health Services. But the pastors are so so appreciative of this that resources all around them that they weren't aware and they, they are there's no church there's no fee and so as you know when we serve others we begin to love others and i love these people uh and it's just uh as i mentioned to you in our conversation the other night um, i had the opportunity to uh i was invited to speak at the dedication of the temple for the casa de dios their apostle uh, came out from Guatemala City, uh, and I was asked to participate and be part of the program. It was 
just a sweet, spiritual, wonderful experience. One of the things I've learned over this past year, like as I've gotten to know these good people, is that they too love the Lord. In all sincerity, they love him. And and we've decided we really have the same goal, and that's to bring Heavenly Father's children to Jesus Christ. Gene, you've had such an, an incredible, beautiful life of service in the church in so many different ways. I, I'm just in awe of you, and I just admire you and respect you so much, knowing all that you've done. And now you're at this great place in your life where you can kind of look at all the incredible things that you've achieved. And I, I just think it's beautiful and what an awesome example you are. And uh, I want to transition this into, because to me, it sounds like you're, you know, your life is very busy and very full uh, with a lot still, you know, going on in your life. And yet uh, you've chosen this week to take on one more thing for which Gene, I will not be able to express how grateful I am for it. But why don't you tell our audience what you took on this week? Ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, I am the producer of Latter-day Lives. And I <laughs> yes. am so excited. And, and, uh, I, and I, I love our hosts, as I know you do. <laughs> well, that's really kind, Gene. I, uh, I, I got to say, I was humbled, very humbled by the response I got of such wonderful people reaching out. Uh, but Gene, when I read your message, I immediately thought, man, if someone this amazing is willing to do it, then what a blessing, what a blessing for me. And now I get it. You just love to serve and, uh, and you're going to meet so many great people through, you know, us working together. And I just, I'm a little overwhelmed. I'll be honest, Gene, I'm, I'm overwhelmed by your goodness and, uh, what a blessing you are. Well, you, you are such a blessing to so many of us. Uh, and as I mentioned to you, and I'll mention to the listeners, uh, your podcast, Letter Day Lives, really helped me get through 2020. Uh, it was a tough year. And uh, I would be up at our cabin, put on my headphones and listen to a podcast. And just that, just start with that upbeat music, that, the intro that you have. It just all of a sudden, the, a lot of these issues just we got set aside for a little while. So thank you so much for that. Well, you are a blessing for me, Gene, and I'm excited for us to work together and to get to know each other better. And I should say to our listeners, this is just us getting to know each other. I mean, that's <laughs> that's one of the fun things about it, but that's really what this show is all about, is getting to know our guests. Well, Gene, you know exactly how we are going to uh, wrap up this conversation. And man, I feel like I already know you so much better now, but uh, I'm still going to ask the question, what does being a member of the church mean to you? You know, every time you ask that question to one of your guests, and and by the way, a uh, huge shout out to your guests. Incredible. How many episodes? 172, 171, yeah, somewhere in there. Wonderful people. And, yes, and thank all you of them. But as you've asked that question to each of them, each time you ask it, I ask myself that question. How would I answer that? <laughs> a little, I'm not a clue that I would be asked that question <laughs> in the same forum. Um, the gospel of Jesus Christ means everything to me. Absolutely everything. Um, the peace, the calm, the strength that comes through that, I am so grateful. 
the church becomes the delivery system for how we learn about that doctrine. Uh, the church is the delivery system for the saving ordinances. But everything points back to the good news, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And at its center is the atonement of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Um, I am so grateful for that, that witness and for that testimony. And I take him at his word and his invitation when he says, um, cast your burdens upon me. And kind of when I, when I think about that, what I hear in my mind is, that's my job. I've got your back. Let me take that from you. And so what it means to me is I, I just have to be humble enough and then take him up on his offer and his invitation. So, so the, the short answer is the gospel of Jesus Christ is everything to me. Beautiful answer. Yeah. He is, as you just heard, a husband. He is a father. He is a former mission president, a former Area 70, has done so much good work, continues to do work, and he is now the producer of the Latter-day Lives podcast. Gene Chittister, thank you so much for sharing your Latter-day Life with us. We appreciate it. Thank you, Sean. And my special thanks to my new friend and producer of the Latter-day Lives podcast, Gene Chittister. Uh, again, thank you so much to all of you who reached out. My heart is just so full and touched by all of you willing to help out. And again, you will hear from me individually, each and every one of you. And uh, Gene is just an amazing guy. He's already gotten to work looking for guests, and and uh, I'm just very grateful to uh, to work with him. And then on social media, again, we had some people, uh, several people reach out, but uh, there's an incredible young man by the name of Skylar Fleming. And uh, Skylar, such a good guy. You've actually heard his name on the show before. We did the Christmas episode a couple of years ago, and I asked everybody to send in their Christmas stories. And Skylar sent in such beautiful sentiments, just his thoughts about what uh, Christmas means to him now, now that he's been converted to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I was so touched by that letter, it really stood out to me. And then a while later, I was up in northern Utah and had the opportunity to meet Skylar in person. And he's just this amazing guy. And when he heard about the social media uh, post, he reached out to me, and I was just so grateful that he did. So Skylar is our new uh, social media manager, and Gene is the new producer of the show, and I'm so grateful for these two incredible men. Thank you so much. Uh, this week in my Latter-day life, I had an interesting experience. I've been out walking a lot in the mornings, and I really enjoy it. Uh, I enjoy part of it. <laughs> Lately, part of it, I walk straight up this hill that I like to call Cardio Hill. Uh, I have other choice names for it, but I'll save those. And it's terrible. It is straight up and down. It is a huge elevation gain. And uh, I just know I need to do it for my health. And heading up this hill, there are a lot of people who walk up and down it. And the whole route from my house up the hill and back is about two and three quarters miles. And the first half is all uphill and then all the way back is downhill. And a lot of people walk up and down this hill and I say hill, it, it's a road and I walk on the sidewalk and it goes 
again, just feels like straight up. And a lot of people walk it because it's really good for your heart. And the other morning I was walking along and there was a, an older gentleman who was walking down the hill. And You know, as people walk past you, you smile. And I had my AirPods in and I was listening to something and, and you smile and you nod or whatever. And, and this guy, it looked like he was trying to get my attention as he was walking down the hill. So I paused whatever I was listening to and he looked at me like he was going to say something really wise. And I was wheezing and puffing and sweating. And he looked at me and he said, I think you're going the wrong way. <laughs> and it was so funny because it was obvious he had already gone up to the top of the hill. And here he was walking down. And I looked down to the bottom and I looked up again. I went, I think you're right. It'd be a lot easier to go with you. He goes, come on, walk with me. It's a lot easier. And I said, you know, I'd be kicking myself. I think I should go to the top of the hill. And he goes, you know, I guess you're right. And we kind of had a good laugh and he took off his way and I finished and then got to walk downhill the rest of the way. And I got to thinking about just, first of all, he was a very funny guy and a very nice guy. I kind of needed that little bit of a break and that lift. Uh, but secondly, I started thinking about how much life is like that. You know, there are so many people who look at us as members of this church who are faithful and they go, dude, you're going the wrong way. You're working too hard. You know, maybe it's, uh, you know, you're devoting too much to your calling or you spend too much time with your family or you're too, like, too honest in your dealings. I've heard that before. You know, all these things and people go, you're going the wrong way. And they do it for the same reason he jokingly told me that I was going up the hill. And that's because a life of discipleship is hard. We work harder. It's the spiritual cardio hill. It is not easy. And I think people who are walking downhill look at us and go, what are they thinking? But much like I, my heart is in a, a better place and in better shape from me walking up this hill every day or a few times a week, I think that we get spiritually in much better shape by walking up the hill. And oh, sometimes it's tempting to stop or to turn around and walk back down or to listen to people who are telling us we're going the wrong way. But the truth is there is so much satisfaction at the top of the hill. So keep taking those steps. Let us all keep pressing forward and moving on and walking up the hill even when we feel that it would be a lot easier to go the other way, because it's not the wrong way. It's the right way. And this life is a test, and there's a great reward to come. And I'm so grateful that I get to put one foot after the other, even if it's tiring, even if I'm out of breath and sweating, that I will make it one day to the top of that hill. And that's what's happening this week in my Latter-day life. Thank you so much for tuning in again this week. We really appreciate it. If you want to connect with us, we'd love to see you on social media. Again, I've got Skylar, who's going to start doing social media here really soon. So he'll be much more responsive and, and better at it, I know, than I am. But uh, we are on Facebook. We are on Instagram. Please come check us out. Uh, just, just search for Latter-day Lives. If you want to reach me directly, I can be reached at Sean at LatterdayLives.com. That's S-H-A-W-N at latterdaylives.com. Well, I think that's about all we got for you this week. So until we meet again, there is a great big beautiful world out there. Go be in it, just not of it. Thanks for listening. <laughs>